Our sermon today will be taken from John chapter 4, verse 43 to 54. This is the word of God. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he made that the water, where he made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, "Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe." The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they, then they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew the that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Thus says the Lord. Thank you, Emily and Elias. If you guys heard a baby screaming out there, no worries. She's okay. She's my daughter. Um, she is particularly energetic, and uh, she's fine. Um, before I start, I just wanted to say another thank you to the to those who served yesterday at uh, Karnakasi Orphanage. Um, it meant a lot to the kids, and, and I know they really loved it and really enjoyed it. And you guys just did such an excellent job planning it, executing it. I barely lift a finger. I just kind of showed up. So really good job, guys, and thanks thanks for doing that. I know they feel really loved and cared uh, by you guys. All right, so we're going to continue in our um, sermon series through the book of John. If you've been with us uh, the past few weeks... We've gone through uh, the book of John. The book of John is what's called a gospel in the Bible, and there's four gospels in the Bible. Gospel just means uh, it's a literary genre that um, uh, that speaks and, and, and records the life and ministry of Jesus Christ on earth. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So let's, took, uh, let's take a look at where in the story, where in the narrative we are in the book of John. We're in chapter 4, verses 43 to 54. Now, the first verse of our passage today, verse 43, says, After the two days he departed for Galilee. Well, the question to ask then is, after the two days of what? Well, John is referring to what happened previously in the text. The event of Jesus Christ interacting with the Samaritan woman. I'm sure you guys have heard about that story before. It's a pretty popular one. Jesus meets a Samaritan woman uh, in the well, uh, Jacob's well. And they have a conversation, and pretty much it goes, she's saying that um, uh, I have water. Uh, Jesus saying, I have living water. I have a, a, a better water you don't know of. I have, you have a thirst you don't feel, but you need, referring to himself and eternal life, that you um, are uh, in need of this living, cleansing water. And the woman rejected that for a second, but then after that, um, she received it, and her whole town as well. And now John says, after two days of Jesus staying in that hometown in Samaria, um, two days later, he's going to Galilee. And John likes to do this in his books. He likes to intertwine events happening before and after. He likes to connect after two days, after this, before this. He likes to do that. Why does he like to do that? Because he wants to show us that all the interactions Jesus Christ has, or has had so far at least in the book, it's all connected to a larger theme, a theme that goes all the way back to John chapter 1, the introduction of the book, called the prologue of the book. It connects to the theme that Jesus is the light that has entered into the world, but the darkness of the world rejects this light. All the interactions connect with that. Let's briefly recap all the interactions Jesus has had, or, or the major ones, up to now, and see how all this connects to the light being rejected by the darkness. So, the first rejection. If you remember all the way back to chapter 2, Jesus did uh, something in the temple, and the Jewish religious leaders did what? Rejected him. Said, who are you to be claiming this gospel? Who are you to be speaking 
like this. This is John chapter 2, verses 13 to 14. And then after that, John chapter 3, verses 1 to 21, Jesus was again rejected by Nicodemus. Remember, he was, uh, these religious leaders sent Nicodemus to speak to Jesus. Who are you to be making these claims about yourself? This is what we call self-righteous rejection. They're saying, we don't need the gospel. I am religious enough. I've done enough good things. I've gone to church enough. I've read the Bible enough. I've done fill the blank enough. We don't need the gospel. Self-righteous rejection. And then after this, you see the story with the Samaritan woman that I just talked about, who at the end received Jesus, yes, but in the beginning, she kind of was pensive about it and a bit rejecting about it, about him. And he's saying, remember, if you hear the story, I'm, uh, you've been divorced five times, and the man you're with now is not your husband. And the woman's saying, that's true. And she kind of quickly just wanted to stop the conversation. Stop prying in, stop interacting with me. I'm not worthy. I don't deserve this. I don't, I'm low in the social totem pole, and I, I don't deserve whatever this living water is. Or, or and we, we call that self-pitying rejection. I'm too bad for Jesus. I'm too dirty for Jesus. One is self-righteous rejection. I'm too good for Jesus. The other one is self-pitying rejection. I'm too dirty for Jesus. And now, third in our passage today, Jesus, we see again, actually being rejected by the Galileans. Now, notice it's confusing because in verse 45, it says that they welcome Jesus, right? But actually, if we study deeper, this story is actually a story of rejection. It's what we're going to call self-absorbed rejection. We'll explain what I mean by that later. But now just keep in mind, John connected this story with the previous passage, saying that there's, the darkness has many faces. Rejection has many faces. It can be self-righteous rejection. I'm too good for Jesus. It could be self-pitying rejection. I'm not good enough for Jesus. It could be self-absorbed rejection. And before we start, I just want to say, I think this is the trickiest kind of rejection, the self-absorbed rejection. I don't mean the worst kind of rejection. All rejection is just as bad, but it's the trickiest. It's the hardest to, to grasp because the people who are rejecting Jesus with self-absorbed rejection um, usually don't know they're doing so. And this is, this is what I mean. But second, I believe this particular type of rejection is one that in our current day and age, the church, including our church, can be very vulnerable to if we're not aware of this type of rejection. Okay, so three things I want to point out. Point one, the less obvious way of rejecting Jesus. Point two, the definitive source for knowing Jesus. Point three, the solid ground it will give us in Jesus. The less obvious way of rejecting Jesus, the definitive source for knowing Jesus, the solid ground it will give us in Jesus. So let's pray, and then we'll dive into our first point. Father, remove me and my words, and let only yours be apparent, and let only you be glorified. And we beg you that from your word, you will give us the mercy and the grace uh, to speak to our hearts and to our minds, and also to our hands and our feet. Dictate us, compel us, lead us, and guide us in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, point number one, the less obvious way of rejecting Jesus. Let's begin with our narrative. Verse 43 begins with explaining that after Jesus stayed with a Samaritan town, right, with a Samaritan woman invited him to stay there, uh, two days after that, he came back close to the area where his hometown is at, which is Galilee, where he interacted with Galileans. Now, in verse 45, it says that they welcome Jesus, but if you study the passage closer, you'll see that this type of interaction is actually no different than all the other interactions Jesus has had before. This is also a type of rejection, although it at first may not seem like it. All right, where in the text do we see that? First, it's very important to note the words of Jesus in verse 44. As he was going towards Galilee, John reminded the readers what Jesus Christ once said. Verse 44, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Now, why do you think John felt the need to remind the readers 
of Jesus' words that a prophet has no honor in his, home, in his own hometown as he was walking towards his hometown. It's to give us a warning, a yellow flag. It's saying there's, there's something a bit off here. It's not all that it may seem. Second, we see that Jesus Christ actually has interacted with these people before. These Galileans that welcomed him, he's interacted with them before. And it wasn't a very good interaction. Let's read verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, Jesus, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So these Galileans that welcomed Jesus saw Jesus at the Jerusalem feast because they were there also. What is this referring to? Well, this is referring to the interaction Jesus had with these Galileans all the way back in chapter 2. Let's read how this interaction in chapter 2 with these Galileans um, uh, uh, unfolded. John chapter 2, verses 23 to 24. These are the same people who were at the feast. Now, when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. These people are the same people that welcomed Jesus in chapter 4. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. That was interesting. These people who, who verse 45 says saw Jesus in Jerusalem and the same people who in John chapter 2 says believed in Jesus. Um, Jesus said he did not entrust himself to their belief. So somehow their, their quote unquote believing in chapter 2 was not affirmed by Jesus. And now their welcoming in chapter 4, verse 44 says, is not honoring to Jesus. Why is that? Was their faith and acceptance not sincere enough? Was it not passionate enough? Is that the problem? No, there's no indication in the text that says their faith or their welcome lacked in intensity or in sincerity. So what then is the problem? Let's continue in verse 46 to see if we get more information from the text. Verse 46, Jesus Christ specifically went to Cana, a region in Galilee. And John felt the need to remind the readers again of what happened in Galilee with Jesus turned water into wine. It's one of the more popular, um, uh, the more popular miracles that he had. So we see these people who believed in Jesus in chapter 2, but yet Jesus said, I did not entrust myself to them. And now the same people in chapter 4 who welcomed them, yet Jesus said, no, the prophet has no honor in his hometown. And now he goes to Cana, where he did the miracle of turning the water into wine. Now there's a theme. There's a theme developing here. What is the theme? Miracles. Jesus and his miracles. In chapter 2, these people believed Jesus as related to his miracles. In chapter 4, these people welcomed Jesus because they saw he can do miracles. And now Jesus went to a region in Cana where he did one of his most popular miracles at that time. Where, by the way, he met an official who wanted him to do a miracle. Verse 46, 47. And at Capernaum there was uh, an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Okay, now at this point, the theme is just thick, and it, we, we can just see what John's trying to say. It's starting to be more clear. These Galileans, they truly had faith in Jesus. These Galileans, they sincerely welcomed Jesus. But the problem is, is that they misunderstood who Jesus was. When they believed in Jesus in chapter 2, verse 23, they believed in Jesus as somebody who can do miracles to fix their earthly needs. Chapter 4, verse 45, when they welcomed Jesus, they welcomed a miracle worker who they think can fix their earthly needs. And this official interacted with Jesus to ask him to do a miracle to what? To meet an earthly need. Jesus Christ did not entrust himself to them because the belief they had and the welcome 
they gave Jesus was commented by John not honoring to him because this is not who Jesus claims to be. Nor is this the purpose of him coming to earth. God has become flesh to die for sinners. That's who I am, Jesus says. And unless you welcome me as that, no matter how passionate your welcome is, no matter how sincere your worship is, it is not honoring to me. I am not primarily a miracle worker that is here to fix your earthly problems. I am the Messiah, the God in flesh that has come to save sinners, reconcile them to the Father, and fix not your earthly problems, but your eternal one of sin and the wrath of a just and holy God. Now note, one more time, Jesus was not rebuking the amount of faith they had. He was not rebuking the genuineness or the sincerity of their welcome. No, the Galileans truly believe that this person is a miracle worker that can solve their earthly problems. They genuinely welcomed this miracle worker into their town. The request the official had was a genuine request, help my son. The problem wasn't that their faith wasn't big enough or their welcome wasn't genuine enough. The problem is that all this faith and all this genuineness was not placed in the true Jesus, but in the Jesus of their own making. Jesus said, I'm the Messiah to come away, to come and take away the problem of sin. They said, no, no, that's not who you are. You are a miracle worker who's here to miraculously solve our earthly problems. We truly believe that. We sincerely welcome you as that. And John is saying, it's, 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 it's a kind of a rebuke, and it's convicting to me. John is saying, you can believe that all you want. You can sing about that all you want. You can scream and shout about it all you want. But no matter how sincerely and how intensely you believe and welcome this version of Jesus, it won't be honoring to him because that's not him. That's not who he is. And it's also not honoring because all this faith and welcome is centered upon God meeting our needs rather than true worship of him. I was invited once to speak at a university. Uh, and this university, the guy who invited me to speak, was the chaplain of the university, and he knew me really well, and he just likes to talk people up. So I came there, and he gave this introduction about me that was like, not even, I'm not close to the person he described me to be, you know, just blah, blah, blah. So I came up there, and I gave the talk. And after the talk, um, I, I came back down, and all these people start to ask for my autograph. And I was like, all right. <laughs> I mean, is that good, I guess? You know, okay. So I started signing all these autographs. And my pride, my sin started well up in me. And I was signing and signing away. And after I realized, uh, what I realized is my friend came and said, hey, stop asking him for autographs. I thought he had concern for my humility. He had concern for my soul, for me not to be proud. But he said that, and I said, no, you know, if they want autographs, let them get autographs, um, <laughs> which is my sin. And he said, no, Tazar, they're taking your autographs, not because they, you know, thought your thing was really great, but because their class required them to get an autograph. <laughs> that they've come to chapel and they've listened to the speaker. And I was like, I knew that. <laughs> I know, you know. I was serving them. Um, <laughs> but, but, and, you know, I, I don't deserve, I don't deserve adoration like that. No one, no human does. But Jesus does. And, and that was self, for them, that was self-serving. It wasn't for me. It wasn't because of me. It was because they needed something from me. Again, I don't know a human being deserves that kind of honor. I'm confessing my sin there. That was my pride. Um, but one person does. Jesus does. And when we come to him just for self-serving requests, that is not honoring to him. And that's why in verse 48, Jesus rebuked them. Unless you see sign and wonders, you will not believe. This is all you want from me. That's what this whole thing has become. That's what I've become to you, a miracle worker to fix your earthly problems. And this is what I mean when I said this is the trickiest type of rejection. Because all the other types of rejection, the person who's rejecting Jesus knows they're rejecting Jesus. I'm too good for you, Jesus. I, I, I'm, too, I'm religious enough. Your mercy and your gospel is for the sinners out there. I go to church every Sunday. I come before the confession of sin. 
I sing very loud. I memorize verses. I fill in the blank. They know they reject me. I don't need you, Jesus, or whatever religious exercise you think you perform to then reject the gospel. The self-pitying rejection we talked about earlier, that's also a conscious rejection. I'm too dirty for you, Jesus. I don't deserve you, Jesus. I'm too, I'm too far away from salvation, Jesus. I can't, I can't receive this mercy. They both know they're rejecting Jesus, but this one, we think we're actually accepting him. We think we're actually believing in him. We think we're actually welcoming him. All the while, he's saying, this is not honoring to me because that is not me. It's a tricky type of rejection. And the church must be on guard that when we sing the lyrics of our songs, when we pray, when we study, when we worship, we must be careful that we are not singing to praying to, studying about, and worshiping the Jesus of our own imaginations. But the true Jesus as revealed in scriptures. Okay, well, the question is, how can we know who the true Jesus is so that we don't fall into this type of version of rejection? Let's go to our second point. But just a warning, the answer may not be as exciting as some people want it to be. Okay, point number two. The def- definitive source of knowing Jesus. The ultimate source of knowing Jesus. Let's continue the story. Jesus Christ's interaction gets more specific. Uh, not, uh, he goes to a specific city. And then it narrows into a specific person with an official. Without getting into too much detail, this official was probably the servant of Herod of Antipas. Antipas, however you pronounce that. He's a Roman ruler. Uh, very ha- valued by, uh, by Rome. He was almost treated like a king. Okay, you see this in Mark chapter 6. Uh, because the region and the time they were in, most likely this official was a servant of Herod of Antipas. So this official Jesus was talking to has a very high status. Even uh, he, ha- he has his own servants, even in verse 51 we, we read. All right, so let's continue in our passage about Jesus' interaction with this official. Verse 46 to 50. So he came to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at a point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. So we see an official coming to Jesus so that Jesus Christ can perform a miracle to fix his earthly problem, to heal his son. Now, I want to be very sensitive here. I'm not undermining the seriousness of our earthly problems. They're they're real, and they're serious. I'm a father. Trust me. There is no single problem more serious to me, or any father here, than their dying child. I'm not in any way undermining the seriousness and the and the need and the, the want we have to, to see some earthly problems be fixed. That's not wrong to want that. But, but the problem here is that um, it's not that we can't ask God to heal somebody or pray for, for that. But what Jesus is rebuking here is not that. It's not the fact that this official brought his son's situation to Jesus. He eventually heals the son himself. But what Jesus rebukes here is that the miracle Jesus can do has become the center of this person's faith and their faith. This is what you're all about. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. He's making a comment to everyone present there. The you is plural in the Greek, so he's not just talking to the official, he's talking to everyone in Galilee present. You should believe me even without signs and wonders. These signs and wonders is not what ultimately defines me not ultimate revelation of who I am. It's not ultimately what you need to seek. It's not how you can ultimately get to know me. How then is Jesus to be known? What is the definitive source of revelation that we may know who he is, what our purpose is, who God is, how to relate to him, obey him, etc.? We see this in the next part of the interaction Jesus has. Verse 49 to 50. Let's, Let's dig deep into that. 
the official said to him, the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Note carefully, Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. This is it. Here it is. Here's the answer. Our definitive source of knowing Jesus, our definitive source of understanding how to relate with Jesus, how to treat him, how to worship him, how to arrange our lives according to him, is by, in, and through his word. The man believed the what? The word that Jesus spoke. Jesus spoke, the man trusted. Jesus made a declaration, the man obeyed. Jesus made a claim, and the man arranged his decisions and his life according to it. This is faith. God speaks, man trusts, and arranges their life according to the word of God. And what this official entrusted to Jesus was no small thing. He entrusted upon Jesus' words. He said, go, your son will be healed. That's all he needed. He believed and arranged his life according to it. It wasn't something minute. It was the single most important thing in his life. The official loved his son. Look at the scene again. He loved his son more than his public image. He begged, this is a high-ranking official. He begged Jesus in public, Sir, come down before my child dies. This is, uh, this is the way, by the way, the, the way this is worded, many commentaries have said, is, is, is the way that a military subordinate would speak to a, uh, somebody higher in the military at that time. Sir, come down before my child dies. This high-ranking official overlooked um, this image, this public image that that might have given. And then Jesus rebuked him publicly. Unless you see sign and wonders, you will not believe. He didn't care. Okay, great, come down and heal my son. It was too important for him to care about his public image. He loved his son more than his public image. He loves his son more than his career. How the official was introduced in verse 46, it's like it, almost his status as an official was kind of like it was just something in passing. Um, verse 46, there was an official whose son was ill. It was just in passing. He was an official. The main thing about him is that he's a father who has a dying child. His child is much more important to him than his public image, than his career. Today, when many parents would sacrifice their kids for their public image and for their career, not this official. Take everything else away. Give me my son. This was no small thing. The one thing that matters most in his life, more than his public image career, and this son wasn't just sick. He wasn't just... Uh, 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 needing medicine. He was dying. These were his last hours. Look at verse 47. He was at the point of death. Verse 49. Come down before my child dies. His son could have died in the journey back to his house. This is his last breath. And yet, even with all this at stake, he trusted the words of Jesus. Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. Jesus said, if you really trust me, if you really knew who I am, my words will be enough. If you think I'm a miracle worker, then my words would mean nothing to you. My miracles would mean everything. But if you have an accurate picture of who I am, my words would mean ultimate, much more than any miracle I can give. Why? Because this has been the case throughout the Bible. If you truly believe that Jesus is God in flesh, if you truly believe what the Bible has revealed about himself, that he is God, Yahweh, pursued sinners, come down to us, you believe that his words or God's words is ultimately authoritative. You see this all throughout the Bible. From the beginning, just go all the way back to Genesis. It's, the theme is trusting God's word is synonymous to trusting God. What was Satan's first attack to Adam and Eve? What about the fruit of, of, of knowledge of good and evil? What did, say, what did Satan say? He went to Eve, and he said, Adam and Eve, and he said, Did God really say you can't touch it? Did God really say? Were those really the words of God? He questioned God's words. I should have it up here. If you don't believe me, go to Genesis 1. Uh, but that's what it says. 
uh, is that what God said? Do you believe in his words? Question his word. Question what God has revealed about himself through his word. Question the mechanics of this world that God has revealed in his word. Question his commands. Question his declarations of who you are in him. Question the purpose of creation. Question your purpose as revealed in the word of God. Adam and Eve doubted God's word as a result, which is identical to doubting God, and received the consequences thereof. Because dishonoring God's words is synonymous with dishonoring God all throughout Scripture. This is what faith looks like. In the midst of a crowd that wanted to be entranced by signs and wonders, in the midst of a multitude who demanded miracles, here stands a man who was exposed to the word of God and said, I trust it. That's all I need. Even when the thing that is at risk is the most important thing in my life. And I will live my life according to it. We see here John encouraging the readers, take Jesus at his word. Trust it. Live by it. That's how we are to know who Jesus is. How he's revealed himself to be through his words, not through miracles. The whole point of miracles all throughout the Bible was never the miracles anyways. All throughout the Bible, the point of miracles is to affirm the words of the person doing the miracle. Let's go all the way back. Uh, Moses, right? Uh, he came back to Israel, I mean to Egypt, uh, and spoke to Pharaoh, and his magicians did something, and then uh, God used Moses to do something even more miraculous than the magicians did. And then what? To confirm what? That this is my true messenger. That his words are true. Not other gods, not Pharaoh who deems himself as God, not you. I am God. It's to affirm who Moses is and Moses' words. Elijah, uh, who fought the, um, uh, the prophets of Baal, and Prophet of Baal, you know, did all these crazy things and have fire come down on us. Prove to us, Baal, that you are God. And Elijah said, let fire come down and burn this statue. And such did happen. To confirm what? That Elijah is a true prophet of God. That his words is the one that is, uh, uh, that is the one that is authoritative. Peter, in Acts chapter 5, he, he heals a blind man along with other miracles in chapter 5 to confirm that his teaching and preaching, his proclamation of who Jesus is, which is what he did, he did at the end of chapter 5, is, the, is what's true. The miracles has never been the point in itself. The words of the person speaking it is what the miracles affirm. The miracles is a, is a floodlight that shines and authenticates the words of the one did it in the Bible. Friends, when we're praying to Jesus when we're worshiping Jesus, when we're singing to Jesus, if we're praying and worshiping and singing to a miracle worker whose primary job is to fix our earthly problems, not as a God who has put on flesh to redeem us from our eternal problem of sin, who he has revealed himself to be in his word, that no matter how emotive your worship is, no matter how beautiful your prayers are, no matter how sincere our songs are sung, we have fallen into the same type of rejection that the Galileans fell into. The rejection of self-absorption. Don't look at my miracles, Jesus said. This is to affirm who I am, what my word says about who I am. Obey my word, which is simultaneous to obeying and seeking me. That's a picture of true faith. Not by demanding Jesus to be a miracle worker, to fix the problems in our lives that he's never promised to fix. But to trust him by his word and arrange our lives according to it. And you know what will happen when we grow in this? When we start to heighten the awe and wonder we have with the word of God. I wish I had a physical Bible with me right now. What will happen is that we will find solid ground. Let's go to our last point. Point number three, the solid ground it will give us in Jesus. What we will experience when we grow in trusting Jesus Christ at his word, 
is a sense of assurance and, and find solid ground. Here's, here's what I mean. If we claim to have a definitive knowledge of the person of Jesus and who we are in relation to him and truths about salvation, etc., whatever it may be, apart from the word of God, it will never be solid ground. Now, there's many things I can choose as an example of, of things out there that we use to replace our ultimate definitive authority of how we are to know God. A lot of things. But let me just choose one that I personally struggle with a lot, and I, I find it to be a common theme uh, in many people, uh, including myself. And, and oftentimes, we um, make our emotions or our feelings as ultimate authority to who God is, how he views us, what our purpose is, etc., etc. Okay, um, I, I know I struggle with that. And here's what I mean. I don't want to demonize emotions. Emotions in itself isn't an evil thing. It's emotions. God gave us emotions. But when I make my emotions as the ultimate definer of truth, for example, if I say this, how much I'm able to feel God's love for me right now must be the actual amount that God feels for me right now. How much I'm able to feel God's love must mean that's how much he loves me. Do you know how tiring that can be? <laughs> now, of course, I'm not saying it's bad to want to be emotionally in tune with about how God feels with us. But if the butterflies in our stomach <laughs> becomes the definitive source of truth, of who Jesus is, of how he feels about you in this particular moment, of how much we're supposed to serve him in this particular moment, if, 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 if that's the definitive truth, at worst... It'll cause us to panic. At worst, it'll cause us to panic because when we don't feel this emotional intensity, it's gonna. It, it means that God's love for you is also disappearing according to your emotions disappearing. It's gonna cause you to panic. And at best, it's gonna be unrealistically exhausting. If, if, your, if your ability to emotionally sense God's love for you equals the definitive truth of the actual amount of, of love that God has for you, you know how tiring your life will be? <laughs> You're going to feel this pressure to always be in this ecstatic whatever uh, throughout your whole life. That's tiring. At worst, it will cause you to panic. At, at best, it will be unrealistically exhausting. But when we dig deeper into the Word of God and let the Word of God be the determining factor of how much He loves you, how He feels about you, our peace in Him will be determined by something not as fluctuating as our emotions or anything else. Let, let's try that, okay? For our last point, let's try to do that. Let's try and look in God's Word today what He actually feels about His people, which, by the way, is something Jesus tries to communicate throughout this whole passage. Okay, let's try that. Instead of listening to our emotions, let's listen to the Word of God. Okay. What... Where do, we, where do we see how God feels about his people in this passage? We can see it in the slowness of how Jesus' response was to the official. Now, it's interesting. Um, when the official asked Jesus to heal his son, he did not just immediately do it. He did not say, oh, yeah, my bad. Fixed it. No. He took his time. He taught him a lesson. He even rebuked him. Now, if 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 our natural thought is, if Jesus truly loved this official, he would have healed his son right away, right? If the point of Christianity is miracles, Jesus would have healed the son right away. The official would say, sir, heal my son. Jesus would say, done. That's the end of the story. If, 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 if Christianity was all about miracles. But that's not how the story progressed. Jesus took his time. He didn't heal the son right away but first taught the official a lesson by rebuking him, rebuking a father whose son was dying. There must be something very important that Jesus thought he needed to hear. And he wanted to teach him two very important things. One, that Jesus does not, God does not owe anyone anything. That God does not owe anyone anything. And two, Jesus wants to give us something infinitely more significant than physical healing. First, God, Jesus, does not owe anyone physical healing. Now, again, I want to be extra sensitive. Some of you may have family members that are sick. 
um, you yourselves may be uh, uh, sick. And I don't, I don't want to sound insensitive, and I apologize if I have. But, 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 we, but unless we realize, unless we realize that Jesus, God, does not owe anybody anything, we will miss something much greater that Jesus felt like he needed to tell this father and this official. Why does God or Jesus not owe man anything? Because scripture is clear. We have all sinned and we don't deserve anything from him. If anything, we deserve his wrath and his displeasure. The whole point of Jesus coming down on earth as a lamb of God is because we have fallen short of God's glory. And anything we deserve is wrath. But yet he gave us mercy. Uh, Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus himself said in John chapter 3, his conversation with Nicodemus, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Oh, sorry, this is John commentating, uh, referring to Jesus. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already. Left to our own, we deserve condemnation. Why? Because like the Galileans, we reject his word. And we find ultimate source of revelation in other places. We often fall into self-righteous rejection like religious leaders. I feel like, let's just use the feeling example. I feel like I'm good enough. I don't feel like I'm that bad. I don't feel like I need a savior. I must not need a savior. Or I feel like I'm not good enough. I feel like I'm too dirty. I feel like I'm too far away removed from Christ. I must be too dirty for a savior. Our ultimate authority is what we feel or self-absorbed rejection. I feel that my greatest need is my career advancement, physical health, and increase in savings. That's what I feel like my biggest need is. So it must be true. Oh, and a wife. Um, so it must be true that my biggest need, therefore, is that. Those are big needs. I'm not saying they're not. And I don't want to sound insensitive. I think I might have, and I might get in trouble later. Uh, but I really am not trying to be insensitive. But there's a bigger, a bigger problem you have. And there's a bigger need that you have. And Jesus is saying, until you realize, I don't owe you anything. Anything anyone deserves is wrath and displeasure. Romans 3, 11, 23. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So no, Jesus does not owe us anything. We cannot demand from him anything. As if it's our right for him to give us these things. He's not required to. But yet, but yet he still healed the official's son. Why? And not only that, verse 53 says that the father and his whole household believes. Usually in the New Testament, when, when the head of the house and the household believes, that's almost always a reference to saving faith, to salvation. But how? Why did Jesus give the official this? Was the official any better than any of us? Is that why? No, he was rebuked by Jesus, remember? But yet, Jesus Christ not only gave his son physical, physical healing that they did not deserve, but also gave them what seems to be the case here, although I'm not 100% sure, his whole household true saving faith. Why? Why and how can God give anyone anything but wrath or displeasure? Well, the answer is not so obvious. I'm ending, I promise. The answer is not so obvious, but it's hinted in verse 53. I'll read it with me, and if you just uh, uh, silently follow along so, so that it can really seep into us. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. Referring here to the official, right? The official is the father. That's the father in verse 53. And his dying son was the son in verse 53. His dying son escaped death and lived. And the hour was referring to the seventh hour, which is 1 p.m. at that day. If you go with their time frame. So that's the, the father is the official and the son is the dying son and the live and the hour is talking about when the son actually was healed. But if you look at the themes in this verses, it is absolutely clear that there's, that there's another father it's talking about. There's another son it's referring to. Why? Because specifically, the, the, remember the significance of the word the hour in the book of John? It's always, almost always referenced to the cross. In our assurance of pardon, we just read about the hour. And what happened at the hour of the cross? There was another father, wasn't there? There was another son, and there was another death. Where this heavenly father, unlike the official, did not experience relief 
of his son escaping death. But rather, his son willingly climbed on a cross and took the wrath and the displeasure that was meant for us and died for us. Why? So that we who do not deserve anything but wrath and displeasure may now have the mercy and pleasure of God. I'm not forcing the interpretation here. This theme is all throughout the book of John. Even consults some commentaries and it said, this verse should echo in the minds of the reader another father and his son and another death experience. What is John trying to say? The only reason why Jesus could impart to sinners who reject his word and him every day and give them mercy and give them grace and give them pleasure, uh, his pleasure to them and not ask from them the punishment that they deserve is because he already took it upon himself on that cross. And friends, if you're in Christ today, this is who the word of God says you are. But I don't feel very loved by God. Well, what's your ultimate authority? How loved you feel you are? Or what God has said in his word and the declaration he has told you of who you are and what you're worth? That you are a beloved child. You are ransomed. But I just don't feel it. For, for some reason, I don't have that job I've been praying for. For some reason, I don't have that relationship I've been asking for. For some reason, I haven't received the healing I've been wanting. It's hard to feel like He loves me. And hear Jesus say from this text, Oh child, unless you see signs and wonders, will you not believe? Is my word not enough? Must you doubt what I have said about my love to you every time something unfortunate befalls you? Is that all I am to you? A miracle worker who, who, who's here to fix your earthly problems? Take me at my word. I love you. So much so. I climbed on a cross for you. But it's really hard to believe that. It's really hard to make the word authoritative over our own feelings. And I know that, and I struggle with that every day. And it won't happen in an instance. Neither did it happen in an instance for this official. Look at verse 50. Verse 50 says, He believed the word Jesus Christ spoke to him, and then he went on his way. But then, if you skip to verse 53... It says, he himself believed. After the servant came to him and affirmed that it, what Jesus said would happen actually happened, he himself believed. I thought he already believed in verse 50. Why did he believe again in verse 53? Well, because his faith grew. It doesn't just happen automatically. You don't instantly trust the word of God over your own feelings. I know it's hard to trust that and it's hard to believe that. And it takes time. But take Jesus by his word. I know it's difficult to trust him over our emotions or other things. And at the beginning, our faith in his word may be little. But a little bit of faith in the true Jesus is infinitely more significant than a ton of faith to the Jesus of our own imaginations. Take him at his word. Growing in this is what's going to carry you through the roughest seasons. It's going to keep you humbled in the most uplifting seasons. It's going to encourage you to follow him in the lowest seasons. It's going to keep you faithful in the loftiest seasons. Because when we feel like we're at our best, we will remember he owes us nothing. And when we feel like we're at our worst, we will remember he has given us everything. Solid ground. Now, this passage may seem like it's only directed to Christians, but I believe this passage can also be um, uh, an encouragement uh, for those who are not Christians, who are still exploring the gospel, exploring Christianity. I think this passage encourages them to ask the question, just because the Bible isn't my ultimate definitive authority over life and God and eternity, it doesn't mean that you don't have one. It doesn't mean that they don't have one. Um, even if you're not religious, you might say, I'm not a religious person I rely on my own reasoning 
I don't have any definitive authority. Well, when you say that, you actually do. You're saying that your autonomous reasoning is your ultimate authority. It doesn't mean that you don't have an authority, but your, your autonomous reasoning is your own authority. And making in the claims your reasoning makes about eternity, about God, about yourself, um, is what's true. That, that's what. So it's not. I'm not. I don't want to demonize reason. Reason is amazing. I don't want to. Just like I'm not demonizing emotions. Uh, but it's just a question to. It's just informing you that actually everyone has an ultimate authority. Uh, at a definitive authority. What is it for you? But if you are in Christ today, and you have taken him at his word, and the word of God has become your ultimate authority, that He's that you've believed him as who he has described himself to be, the Lamb of God, the Messiah who has come to redeem you for himself, and thus by doing so, receiving all the glory and honor for your salvation, and we can own up to not even an ounce of glory and credit. All belongs to him, none to us. If, if you have received this, then as a child of God, sometimes it will be hard to believe what he has declared in his word about who you are, about who we are. And to grow in making this word authoritative over all is, is going to take a while. Be kind to yourself in the process. Be patient with yourself and slowly find solid ground in finding his word as ultimate authority above all else. Take him at his word. This is who you are. This is who God is. This is what he has done for you. And now, go and arrange your life according to it. Let's pray. Father, we all hear are tempted and do reject you daily. Your word is clear about that. Sometimes we feel self-righteous as if we don't need a savior. Sometimes we feel self-pitying as if we are too dirty for a savior. Sometimes we're self-absorbed that we make salvation all about meeting our earthly needs and not the eternal problem that we have. And Lord, emotions is just one example of something that we use as ultimately authoritative over your word. There are thousands more. We cannot in ourselves seek you. And that's why your word said that you have come to seek us. And that now, washed by the blood of the Messiah, God who came in flesh and died for us, we can find in his word who we are. And no matter any else, Guard us in solid ground of your word that we may not be tossed to and fro by cunning doctrine and any other thing, but held firmly in your word. Thank you for giving us sinners the undeserved mercy that you have given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.